Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to share God's word with you. And thanks to the team uh, giving us some wonderful worship this morning. And we're just doing a rehearsal for the upcoming uh, hybrid service that, God willing, will be happening next week. So uh, those who want to attend in person will be able to do so um, with some restrictions, of course. We have space seating and uh, reduced mingling and uh, no singing during the worship, but uh, we can make melody in our hearts to the Lord, and it's a blessing to have uh, such a talented and gifted team and volunteers who are serving the Lord to make this happen. So we'll be in Luke chapter 16, if you'll turn there, and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is true, that you are an awesome God who appeared to Moses and the children of Israel on Sinai, and you have made uh, clear your will, and you have given us your truth, and we praise you for sending Jesus to be our Savior, and how he's come in a humble and uh, gentle way to lead us to the kingdom of God. Through his shed blood, he provides atonement and forgiveness for our sins, and we are so grateful to be called children of God by grace through faith in him. We ask, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit and help us to understand your word and to walk in it today, in Jesus' name, amen. Bible teaches that God is a righteous and just judge. He can't be manipulated or bribed or swayed from upholding his perfect truth and one day, we'll all give an account of ourselves to God, and many will attempt in vain to justify themselves. But happy are those whom God justifies by grace through faith. We have something called a good behavior bond, that if you were to commit a crime, you could be released. There could be some mercy shown you or leniency, um, but that is foreign to the courts of God. There's no one good but Him, and any person who thinks the good they do could sweep away the lies and lusts and envy and greed and hate and unbelief, it's a deception. God will hold us to account. But today, if we confess our sin, believers will be forgiven. We can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. We're going to be in Luke 16, 14. I didn't have the opportunity to go through the whole chapter last week, so a brief recap. Jesus taught the people with the parable of the unjust steward. He was a man who had wasted his master's goods, and he was going to be made redundant. And he was commended by his master, not for wasting his goods, but for using everything he could in his power to, for, to secure his future. He wanted to have another job, and so he used the, the debts of his master. He settled some of those so that he could make friends who would receive him into their houses. Believers are called to be faithful to use the time and money and resources God's given us to think ahead with eyes on heaven, an eternal future that he has for us. The one who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. He who is unfaithful in little will also be unfaithful in much. These are some of the themes throughout the chapter and this key theme that we don't have to have much to give God our all. And in those sacrifices, he is well pleased. So we're called to, as the scriptures say, to minister the gifts God's given us one to another as stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we come to Luke 16, verse 14. 
It says, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is abomination, is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees, they loved the, the nice clothes and the best seats and uh, titles and the respect of the people. And they twisted the law to justify themselves. And they used the law to condemn others, to hold others to a standard they didn't keep themselves. And uh, like many today, these self-righteous rulers, they sought to set themselves up for a comfortable life on earth. They neglected the true riches of the kingdom of God and the world that is to come. Jesus continued in Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. In the synagogues and the temples, temple, uh, the law was faithfully taught. And when John the Baptist arrived on the scene, he began to preach repentance and the kingdom of God. He came baptizing with water so that the Messiah could be revealed to the nation. It really reminds me of when God revealed himself to the nation on Sinai. There was this earthquake and fire and smoke and this trumpet. And when Moses drew near to God, he spoke to him with a voice that was audible and heard by all the congregation, all the children of Israel, and they trembled. When Jesus was revealed, remember he was baptized the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove landed upon him and a voice from heaven said in the hearing of all the people, this is my beloved son in him I am well pleased. Hear him. So he was the Lamb of God manifested to save sinners. To people under the law, Jesus said this during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five seventeen and 18. Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So the preaching of the, God, of the kingdom of God was not to undo or to destroy or to put aside the law. It was to fulfill it, to complete it. The law is of great value today because it witness of Christ, the law and the prophets. It shows us the righteousness of God our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness and the way to have forgiveness by grace through faith. Since John the Baptist, repentance, the kingdom of God was preached and it says everyone is pressing into it. It's important for us to realize that the culture, the traditions, the uh, identity of the Jewish culture was in the law of Moses. They were very protective of it. They were highly resistant to any change from it. To people who were firmly resistant to any change, the gospel of Christ, it was a revelation of God's eternal plan, whether they approved of it or not, whether they were comfortable with the idea or not. They had thousands of years of scholarship, devoted practice, invested in the divine law. Jesus came to fulfill it. I mean, how could they throw aside what was perfect, right? The law is perfect. David said that in the Psalms. So it's perfect. Why, why don't we just stick with what's perfect? Well, because Jesus would bring in a new covenant through his own blood. They, 
The Jews, they searched the Scriptures thinking that in them they would find eternal life, but they spoke of Jesus who would give them eternal life. The law wasn't going anywhere, but Jesus would shed His blood to atone for sins. He would die on a cross. He would be buried in a tomb. He would rise from the dead, and He would give the Holy Spirit without measure to all who have faith in Him. And the tittle, it would be a small marking in the original text. It says it, it would be harder for one of those markings to pass or not come to pass than for uh, heaven and earth to pass away. Like it's going to be fulfilled. Like it or not, Jew and Gentile alike, they're being pressed into the new covenant for salvation. It's kind of like a PC user when Windows says, we are having an update. And you're like, I kind of like what we have going. I'm used to that program. I don't want a change. This works for me. But if you want the upgrade, you have a choice. You can keep running the old software and the old hardware, or you get the upgrade. Or the iPhone, you know, hey, when you get this iPhone, new iPhone, but you have a new charger for it. You're like, but I like my old charger. I, I, I bought that charger specifically for my phone. But if you want the new one, so it's like you're being pushed into something you don't really want. You don't feel like you need it. He's saying everyone is being pressed into this. The kingdom of God, by grace through faith, that is the way. It's, not, it's never been by law that we could be saved. The law condemns. Christ is the one who forgives and saves and gives eternal life. Now, the great irony is the scribes and the Pharisees who claimed to honor and obey the law, they were one who justified themselves. Jesus cites their marital practices as an example of the way that they sinned. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus is talking to people who had just scorned him. They were mocking him. They thought, what does this guy know? And they used the law to justify themselves. They used the law to justify divorcing someone. And they were doing it legally, but God knew their hearts. He saw adultery there, and he called them out for it. Now, scriptures from the Bible, we have to realize, have been used to... Uh, justify all manner of beliefs, many practices that are sinful. Scriptures like this one that Jesus spoke, they can be taken out of context and be used to condemn others. Uh, God holds us to an account beyond the letter of the law, according to his Holy Spirit. And the primary emphasis of what Jesus is saying here is divorcing with the aim of marrying someone else. It's important to point out, this is not all that Jesus said on divorce or remarriage, and other passages, they ought to be brought to bear on what Jesus is saying for a more complete picture. It's like Jesus is honing in, and he's honing in on his listeners. One specific point, it's kind of like an astronomer saying, hey, look at this, and they show you a celestial body in the heavens. And you're like, oh, that's nice. You know, it's shiny. It's, I can see the texture of that, that planet. But you're only seeing it from one side. And you don't really understand even where it's placed and why it's significant. What it's called, you don't know. And so when we see a scripture like this that seems very cut and dried, we have to realize we're only seeing one aspect of it. Jesus said a lot on the subject. And so to understand it, we need to take all of the scripture into account. I believe damage has been done in and outside the body of Christ because of misunderstandings over verses like this one where it's a complex personal issue and Jesus isn't 
laying down a new law here. From other passages we learn, it was a practice among the Pharisees that they had a legal and moral obligation to divorce their wives if there was uncleanness found in them. Now, there was a very broad, it became extremely broad, what exactly uncleanness means. And so, because that definition was so broad, they divorced one wife to marry with the intention of marrying another wife. And Jesus exposed that as adultery. I like what Pastor David Guzik said in the Enduring Word Commentary. He said, Jesus also taught that sexual immorality was acceptable grounds for divorce, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. 19, 7 through 9. And later the Apostle Paul added that desertion by an unbelieving spouse was also an acceptable reason, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Because of these two clear allowances, we must regard Jesus' command here to refer to one who divorces his wife without biblical cause and marries another, that this one commits adultery. So Jesus is speaking to men under law who flouted the law. They claimed to be following it. They justified themselves. They used the law to justify themselves, but God knew their hearts. God has directed husbands to be faithful to their wives. In Malachi 2.16, it says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. Treachery is to be deceitful, to have a secret motive, a hidden unfaithfulness. God, it says, hates divorce because there's two that he has made one, and to tear it apart, it's violence, yet there are times that divorce is warranted and not a sin. Married people aren't supposed to seek to be loosed from their marriage, to find a technicality where they can escape their vows, or uh, if you're single, to seek to be married. We ought to be content in the place where God has us. Among Christians and Jews, there are various views concerning when divorce is justified and whether a divorced person should remarry. The emphasis here, though, is on Christ's, so God's intended permanence of the marriage relationship and how marriage joins two people as one. Praise God that there is healing for adulterers and adulteresses by the grace of God who repent. And I'm telling you the truth. There are people who've been married for 50 years whom God will hold to account for their adultery and face eternity in hell. And there are people who have been divorced, maybe divorced many times, who have suffered the shame of slander. They've been ostracized. They've been judged negatively by believers who will someday be vindicated as God by righteous and accepted by him. Who are we to judge another man's servant? Let's be convinced in our own mind how we should live. Let's be faithful to our spouses, those who are married. And let's honor God by being faithful to him, right? We ought to be faithful to the Lord. Like the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, we ought to heed Jesus to go and sin no more. Jesus continues, Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus tells a story about a rich man who had great wealth. He had comforts that all men would esteem. 
He's clothed in purple, so he's elegant, wealthy. You, the purple dye would be sourced from a, a mollusk, so it was very rare. It was expensive, usually for royalty. He's eating sumptuously or luxuriously every day, so he's eating the best meats. He's drinking the finest wines, and such feasting would be an exceptionally rare treat for most people. But he's living the life every day. He's, he's, ha- he's not denying himself any luxury. In contrast to this rich man, there's this poor beggar named Lazarus, a cripple. He had to be laid at his gate. So he's hungry. He's just hoping for some scraps, some crumbs from the rich man's table. And the only attention he seemed to receive was the, the dogs who were licking his sores. It's just an awful situation. Starving man, he's helpless. The dogs are paying attention to him. And because Lazarus is named, it's likely not a parable. In all the other parables that we see, uh, it says it usually says it's a parable. It says why Jesus spoke the parable, to whom he spoke the parable, but now he uses someone's name. So that's unique among all the stories Jesus told. It tells us about God's care, doesn't it, that the suffering beggar was known by name to God, and the rich man, the man that people would have been happy to name drop that they had spent an evening at his house eating his fine foods, he remains nameless, he remains unknown. Do you know what Lazarus means? It means one whom God helps. I am sure the Pharisees were just continuing to scorn Jesus. And they're like, they're scoffing at the absurdity of the situation. Like that destitute man, that cripple, that beggar, he clearly has done something to deserve this. He or his parents must have sinned for him to have fallen in such hard times. And he is now being punished. And, and he deserves to be where he is. And having a callousness and a hardness of heart towards him. The law of Moses, it spoke very little on the afterlife. The emphasis primarily was the the promise of blessings to be received by God with lands and flocks and food and good harvests and rain in season, things like that. And then curses for those who disobeyed God that involved sickness and fruitlessness and lack and suffering and being taken uh, captive by their enemies or defeated in battle. So it's no surprise that people correlated fruitfulness or, or luxury with God's favor and cursing and suffering uh, as being connected to one another. Some then, and I think now, may forget that the grace of God is given to all people all the time. Uh, Jesus taught in Matthew 5.45 that God makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He sends rain to the just and the unjust, to those who love him, to those who curse him. And for this reason, we ought to even love our enemies because God blesses those who curse him. The grace of God was upon the children of Israel continually, and they imagined they deserved it because of their piety and their obedience and their service unto the Lord. They felt a sense of entitlement to the luxurious things or the wealth or prosperity as their right because of their conduct, because they have done the right thing, 
well, he's done something right. Right? Have you ever heard that before? Someone's living large and you go, well, he's done something right because of what, he's, what he has or how he's living. And that was very much the mentality under law. The blessings from God are all of grace. We don't deserve any of them. They could never be earned. All our lives and all we have are gifts from God that we receive. And let's not imagine that pride, self-righteousness, and entitlement only existed under law because Paul called out Christians for it in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And these are people who had spiritual gifts. He says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So people are operating these spiritual gifts and have this wisdom from God, and they're acting like they're boasting that it's their doing. When he says, this is God who's given you that to be stewards of. So, okay, you've been married for 10, 20, 40 years. Has it ever occurred to you that your marriage has only endured this long because of God's grace, not because you're the ideal spouse, because of your faithfulness, you've kept everything together? No, it's God who's done that, right? Let's give him the glory. Let's give him the credit for giving us a spouse, for giving us a family, for letting us keep this career, for having a home for having this, the things that we overlook is even a blessing. That's a blessing from God that you ought to praise him for and thank him for. And in seasons of drought, in famine, in fire, in flood, marriage, divorce, in sickness and health, we have a God who is faithful to us. He's faithful to his word. He has love towards us that never fails. Continuing in Luke 16, 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Lazarus the beggar, over the course of time, he passes away. It says he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. He had been carried to the gate of the rich man, covered in sores, hungry. But in the eternal state, his suffering and pains were over. The rich man, he too, he died and was, he was buried. It doesn't say that about Lazarus. The rich man was buried, so he had uh, you know, his, his memory and his name remembered on a grave somewhere. That's a blessing that Lazarus wasn't afforded in life. And he was brought to Hades, or Sheol, a place of torment. Now, Sheol, to the Jews, that was synonymous with the grave. It was the place where people go after death, the underworld, the realm of the dead, where they're awaiting eternal judgment. I like the term of phrase that they use often in Scripture is that they were gathered to their fathers. And Jesus used the burning bush passage to show the reality of life after death to Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe that we have an eternal soul that will be judged. He said that in Matthew 22, 31 and 32. This is Jesus saying, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So yes, there is an eternal state. We will go and be judged before God for our lives here on earth. 
And through the story of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus reveals specifics about the afterlife that were previously unknown, how Sheol or the grave can be a place where one person is tormented and another person has comfort. The rich man, I believe Jesus hears too, they were in shock. They were in for a shock because the rich man who called Abraham father was separated from him. Here was a Jewish man. He was respected in his community. He was prosperous. The favor of God was upon him. And yet, in eternity, there was a great gulf between him and Father Abraham. Lazarus, the one who seemed to be accursed, he is in Abraham's bosom. Now, bosom's not a word we use that often. Uh, it denotes a place of security, intimacy, and affection. We see it used in Isaiah 40, 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. It's like he's being held close to the heart with love and affection. Just gathering those little uh, lambs and keeping them safe, he's receiving that comfort uh, from an embrace from Abraham. The rich man, he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. This is the one who in life had everything he ever wanted. He ate and drank well every day, but now he's the beggar. Lazarus wanted just crumbs from his table. Now he's begging for a drop of water from the tip of Lazarus' finger to be comforted, to have some mercy. He called Abraham father because of his Jewish heritage, but notice he recognized Lazarus and knew him by name. So at one point, he, he noticed this beggar that had been laid out in front, and he, had, he knew that was Lazarus. And now he's seeing him and recognizes him in Sheol. He notices old Lazarus who's laid by his gate. He could have afforded to give Lazarus a daily seat at his table. He could have had a doctor treat his sores. Uh, he could have provided a place like David did for Mephibosheth, where he's like, you can dwell with me, man. You can stay here. I have enough, and I want to bless you. But he didn't. He's asking Abraham to have mercy on him when he showed no mercy to the beggar. Luke 16, 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Abraham responded to the man who was suddenly naked, pained, needy, desperate for relief from even a drop of water, and he says, Son, remember... Remember your life. Remember all the things you had, all the things you enjoyed. Remember in his lifetime how Lazarus suffered, how he lacked. The only attention he received was unwanted and from mangy dogs. Now he's comforted and you are tormented. And this is the justice of God, that he is getting what he uh, deserved for his sin, the rich man. I think when the rich man was living, he had a lot to take his mind off of the cripple that was outside his gate. He had wine, women, and song, food, 
But this man, he wakes up in torment, and now his perspective is very different because he is suffering. He is lacking. And I expect, because he could remember, he was filled with remorse and regret. And he's thinking, why was I so selfish? How was I duped to think um, that being clothed in purple and feasting meant I was set for life? Because this is not a life that I am enjoying. This is horrible. This is awful. Why did I drown out my conscience where I could have helped someone, but I chose not to? What a waste to have all those things that I was a steward of that did nothing for my eternal future. The rich man, because remember, this is in the same chapter as the unjust steward. The unjust steward, he used his master's things to ensure a better future for himself on earth. The rich man, he didn't use the things he had on earth to secure himself a better future in heaven. He wasn't looking to eternity at all. He neglected to prepare. And that's really, uh, again, showing the Pharisees this emphasis. It's important to point out that the rich man was not punished for wearing fine clothes or eating well every day, nor was Lazarus being rewarded for having a life filled with suffering or lack. Jesus prefaced this story with, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. That's the context of what we're talking about. The Pharisees could point to their financial prosperity. They could justify themselves, hey, it's working for me. My lifestyle's bringing about the rewards and, and blessings that I want. And because their wealth came from God, their abundance was interpreted as God's approval. But he wasn't approving their adultery. He wasn't approving of their greed and their selfishness. God knew it. He, he knew they were covering over their adultery and their greed with religious hypocrisy and like the rich man, were facing an eternity of torment apart from God, apart from Abraham whom they recognized as their father. They looked upon Jesus with scorn even as a wealthy man might scorn the homeless encampment outside his gate. And uh, the sound doctrine, though, of Jesus would be vindicated just like poor Lazarus was comforted. It's one thing to justify yourself before men, but what hope does a man have who's not justified before God? Like, we need to be justified by him. We can justify ourselves all day long. It doesn't mean anything, but are you justified before God? And that's only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There are many rich and powerful in this life who will be shocked to find themselves tormented beggars for eternity. Abraham describes a great gulf separating between the place of comfort and that of torment. When the body dies and our souls go into eternity, there's no switching sides. It's kind of like the touch rule in chess. Have you ever heard that rule? So if you are playing chess and you touch a piece, one of your pieces intentionally, you have to move that piece. It's cheating if you uh, touch a piece and then go, oh, well, I don't think I'm going to do that. You touch it, you have to move it. You must do it. So that's the rules of touch rule. There's an infinite permanence concerning where our souls spend eternity, whether in torment or comfort. The rich man's suffering, it didn't rob Lazarus of comfort. I think seeing Lazarus comforted and himself cut off definitely added to the torment of the rich man. 
He had this anguish of a wasted life without hope. He could only wait for the final judgment, the great white throne, where he would stand before God and be judged according to the law. He would be found guilty. He would, along with Satan and Sheol itself, be thrown into the lake of fire and be tormented forever. The wages of sin is death. Since God's eternal and all sin is against him, it is just that a sinning soul would also die forever. Continuing in Luke 16, 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Seeing that there was no hope of comfort or salvation, now the rich man's mind turns to his family. And he says, I've got five brothers, Father Abraham. Send Lazarus back from the dead to go speak to them. I imagine that they had come and feasted at his house. They had actually walked by Lazarus. And he's thinking, if Lazarus was to go, they would know him. If he went back to them and spoke to them, they would come to their senses. They would listen to him. Abraham dismisses that request because they had all they needed for salvation in the testimony of Moses and the prophets that testify of Jesus. We see Jesus actually references this in Luke 24, 25, when he's walking along the road to Emmaus. It says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's one reason why the law and the prophets will always be valid is because Christ is an eternal Savior, that they testify of Him. They are witnessing of Him. They point towards Him. The rich man in hell or Sheol, he's without faith in God or the power of the gospel to save sinners. He contradicts Abraham. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Notice that he says repent. He realized his refusal to repent was the cause of his situation. That it led to his trouble. He imagines if Lazarus went back, he'd get their attention. Abraham explained this is a vain hope. If you will not hear Moses or the prophets... The one who dismisses and scorns the word of God will not be persuaded to repent according to the word of God, even if one rises from the dead. And this reality would be played out with the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking with after he rose from the dead. Because remember, the Pharisees, they schemed against him. They, had him, they paid to have him betrayed. Then they crucified him. And after he rose from the dead three days later, did they believe in him? No, they tried to cover it up. They didn't believe. Even though Jesus says, in three days I will rise again. They didn't believe. Friends, there's no hope of salvation for the rich man in Sheol, nor for the Pharisees who refuse to repent of their sin of unbelief, to trust in Jesus or receive the gospel. But there is hope for you 
through Jesus Christ, who God sent to save sinners, all who admit that they are guilty before God, and they place their faith in Christ for salvation, can be born again, forgiven, and spend eternity in the presence of God with unspeakable joy, even as Lazarus was comforted. He had this joy and comfort and rest. We have Moses and the prophets. We also have all 66 books of the Bible that lead us to salvation through repentance and faith in Christ. If I had time, I would read all of Romans 10 to you. Uh, But if you're watching this video or in this room, you have the internet, you have the Bible, you can look up Romans 10 yourself and read it. It explains the way of salvation, that you can avoid this future that the rich man suffered. And better than just avoiding a negative future, what about running to your, the God who loves you, the God who has given everything for you, who's given you your life and the things you love and have even perhaps made an idol right now? He's the one that we ought to run to. So we're not just trying to avoid hell. We should seek to, to please God and to, to serve him and to rejoice in him. And he does bring comfort. He does bring peace and salvation. This righteousness that's required for salvation, it is only found through faith in Jesus if we confess our sins, we confess Him as Savior. Many have sung the song, Father Abraham in church, and I can't help but think they could be, some could be like this rich man. So you say you know God. Are you certain that He knows and has justified you? that you will be vindicated by him on the day of judgment. Because there's many who justify themselves before men. Only those who repent of sin and receive the gospel of Christ by faith will be vindicated, will be justified as God's children. Like 1 John 1, 9 says, concerning those who are born again by faith in Christ, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord for his promises, praise him for his warnings, and for the life that he has made available to us through Jesus. Let's be good stewards of the things God's given us. I know that that, uh, rich man cared about his five brothers. We have many people that we know who need the Lord to know him and to be saved by him, to be forgiven by him. And it did that rich man very little good for them to know without him also trusting. So let's be the one who trusts the Lord and leads people to the Lord, using our lives here with an eye to the future, an eye to heaven for his glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your truth, that you are an awesome God, that you are holy and righteous and true, and you've made a way of salvation through faith in Jesus. Thank you for the gospel and the many blessings you give us, Lord, that you instruct us through the law and the prophets how we ought to live and what we ought to do. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us um, just repentant hearts, hearts of love towards one another and towards those who are suffering and who are having, having a rough time with uh, illness and uh, just being, I guess, like Lazarus, Lord a man whose heart was right before you, but whose body was broken and who had nothing. Lord, help us to see that we are like him. And the only way that we can help be helped is through you and through faith in you. 
Lord, we, we cannot make our way to heaven. It's only you who must carry us to your side. And we pray, Lord, that we would receive the consolation that you've provided through Christ, that we would trust in you, that we would walk in the light of the gospel, that we would be good stewards of the manifold grace of God to one another, that we would share the good news with, with others, that we'd walk in the good news ourselves, and that you would be glorified through our lives now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.